Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Thank you to the generous underwriters of Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information and Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Tuesday, September 19th, we're studying Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 to 37. In today's text, the Lord explains a variety of implications that the holiness he gives to his people has for their lives. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Nate Hill. Pastor Hill serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, welcome back to Sharp Iron. It's great to be with you this morning, Pastor Apple. As we get started today, Pastor Hill, talk to us a little bit about the book of Leviticus, any context that we should know, key thoughts as we prepare to look at chapter 19. Yeah, as we uh, enter into chapter 19, just the general reminder of the book is that uh, the life underneath the covenant that God so graciously gives to his people is fleshed out in its fullness. Of course, we see reiteration of God's law, the law that's written naturally upon our hearts, that moral law that is, of course, given in the Ten Commandments themselves. But we'll see how that interacts with particular commandments that are given to the the people of God here, and how also those particular uh, moral laws can have implications for what would later become the civil and the ceremonial laws that the people are to live in. Uh, It anticipates a life that is particularized to uh, the ancient Israelites as they enter into and live in the promised land that God is going to deliver into their hands. And so with that in mind, that will help us to understand that Uh, we have two things at play in Leviticus. We have the eternal moral law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments, but then expands from the summary in the Ten Commandments. And then we'll also have things that are going to be quite particular to the place and time and culture of the ancient Israelites, those things that would strike the ear of the modern reader as quite strange. We'll try and make a distinction between those two things, give the benefit of the doubt to the text, especially in the the strangest portions that we might come around to, and understand that the text doesn't um, contradict itself in any way at all, but if we can discern between those categories of of moral and uh, civil and ceremonial law, we'll begin to see how this is consistent with the rest of Scripture and even consistent with the teachings of Jesus. There's no daylight really between Leviticus and the teachings of Christ. It's just uh, a different enunciation of the Word of God for a different time and different circumstance. So speaking of the teachings of Jesus, Leviticus chapter 19 is one of the places in the book of Leviticus, and I think it might be the only place in the book of Leviticus that shows up in at least the three-year lectionary that many of our churches use. How, How does, just as a way of preview for this chapter, how do we see from the lectionary Leviticus 19 connect to the teachings of Jesus? Yeah, Leviticus 19 does come up in the series C of the three-year lectionary, comes up in proper 10, and it's not the entirety of chapter 19 that we read as the Old Testament lesson, but it is verses 9 through 18, a section that really does 
show that while uh, God's people Israel were chosen to be uh, his light in the midst of a dark world, they were to be a light unto all of the nations and to all peoples. Uh, they were to be a light uh, to the poor and the sojourner, not just those who were rich and affluent from within the nation itself. And, and so, therefore, this Old Testament teaching in Leviticus uh, giving us the heart of, of God for all people is then juxtaposed against uh, Luke chapter 10, where we have the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we see the regard for neighbor, regardless of their nationality or class, the fact that uh, we do have an obligation to not just those that we might draw a line around ourselves and consider our affinity group, but the people who God gives us as neighbors and who God places at the crossroads of our lives. Yeah, I think that's just a helpful thing to have in mind as we read the text from the outset. And what you said, too, about the people of Israel being a light to the nations, I think is is important as well, especially as we hear over and over again in this chapter, the Lord will say, I am holy, so you be holy. As the Lord has been set apart in His holiness, so He sets His people apart in their holiness, the holiness that He has given to them, and that makes them this light. They stand out from among the nations. And that also, I think, is going to give us a handle on some of the, the legislation here that may seem a little strange. Why is that in place? A lot of it may have to do with being distinct from the other nations that they're going to drive out in the Promised Land. So, with some of those thoughts in mind, let's turn to the text. This is Leviticus chapter 19. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted. It will not be accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave, 
assigned to another man, and not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death, because she was not free, but he shall bring his compensation to the Lord, to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you, it must not be eaten. And in the fourth year all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year you may eat of its fruit, to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules, and do them. I am the Lord. That is our text for today, Leviticus 19, verses 1 to 37. So, Pastor Hill there's a lot of different material within this chapter. Maybe before we jump into the, the variety of command, or the Ten Commandments and the variety of applications that are given, talk about that repeated phrase throughout this chapter, which starts, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then it's like it recalls that every time God says, I am the Lord, or I am the Lord your God. Talk about the importance of that phrase getting repeated so often here. Right, the holiness of, of God is something that is given as gift in the covenant to his people, but it is something that is to be lived out and a reflection of, of the God to whom the people belong to the nations. This is the same concept that we have as Christians, uh, New Testament believers. I've heard somebody say that the worst insult you can ever have as a Christian is when you've gotten to know somebody and you know a, a week or two into your relationship with them, you say, and yeah, by the way, I'm a Christian, and they say, oh, I, I never knew that. That that's the problem is that it should be something apparent by our way of living that uh, we do belong to Christ and in the old covenant that they belong to Yahweh and are worshipers of him as opposed to the surrounding pagan deities. So the holiness of God is something that uh, we should be in awe of, but that God incorporates us into by the blood of Jesus and which we then radiate out to the world. Of course, imperfectly as we are, remaining always both sinners and saints and in need of redemption and, and forgiveness. Yeah. As you were talking there about you know the holiness and that God gives, I think the, the way that we think about the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name, 
very much applies, because when we talk about what it means for God's name to be holy, in the explanation given in the Catechism, it is that God's Word would be taught in truth and purity, but also then that we as God's children would live according to that Word. So the holiness that God gives to us through His Word, which for the book of Leviticus, think of the sacrifices, the distinction between clean and unclean, that holiness has been given. Now, what does that holiness look like in the lives of the children of Israel? That's what's being described here. And and for us as Christians still, those things always go hand in hand, that the Word of God that we hear regularly should begin to bear fruit in our lives. Even if it's in great weakness, there is still that fruit that we desire and seek, and this is what the Lord is instructing here. Absolutely, yeah. Um, You know, we're God's workmanship, and um, that workmanship should be something uh, apparent to those who who look upon us. And and of course, we don't want that to lead to spiritual pride. Uh, We should always be mindful of the fact that uh, we do none of this to, to boast of ourselves, uh, but we boast only of Christ crucified and his work uh, through his Spirit in us. Sure. And and I think that's where the, the common refrain in this chapter, I am the Lord, the holiness is always from God. It's not something that we're accomplishing, but it comes from God. That that refrain, you know, I am the Lord, and a reminder that that he is their God, they are his people, it almost, almost reminds me a little bit of the way in the divine service, there are several moments in which, if, if you look at the rubrics within the service, there's a moment for the, the Christian to cross, Christians to cross themselves, make the sign of the cross, whether in the invocation or the absolution or the creed or after the reception of the sacrament. And all of these are reminders, I belong to the Lord, He is my God, He's given me His holiness, and then we go forth in that holiness for daily living. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's a wonderful part of being incorporated into the worship life of the Church, is um, when we walk into Church, it is not primarily about the sacrifices we bring God to please Him, but about that which He works in us through His Word and sacraments. I've had uh, one person in my congregation say, I know, Pastor, this isn't a good analogy, but uh, if I don't go to Church, it's like I didn't get my fix for the week. You know, I, I need this. And I, it, it's in a good way, of course, but if I, if I don't go and I'm not there for some reason, I'm, I'm hungering for it and thirsting for it, um, it's a pretty good metaphor in, in a sense if it's rightly understood. Right, yeah, we, we need God's grace. We need that to receive that holiness from Him through His divine service. So then, the rest of our, our week, we seek to live according to that holiness. And so again, throughout Leviticus 19, there are a variety of ways that the Lord gives to His people to live in the holiness that he has given. Just looking at these these first four verses, which seem to go together, what are some of the implications that the Lord gives to his people at the beginning of this chapter? Yeah, these first four verses are pretty clear. You know, um, I, I, the Lord, your God, am holy, and you shall be holy. And, and he just reiterates a few of the commandments, almost in verbatim form from, from the Ten Commandments as they're received. In summary, we get the fourth, third, and first commandments here. And I think this is important for us to understand that um, he is stating here that of highest importance is the respect that one has for the elders, the parents who are there to pass down the covenant from generation to generation, and the worship of God alone and the avoidance of idols, um, you know, the worship of God alone by keeping the Sabbath, by loving his word, by living within the covenant and not straying from it into this false notion of, of being able to maintain your covenant relationship with the Lord while also dabbling in the false idols that, that surround us. So 
it really sets the idea that a life of faith in the covenant is also an ordered life, a life that's ordered both in the family and and ordered in our relationship to God as primary. Yeah, seeing the the fourth commandment and first commandment, especially side by side, is a reminder of the way that the commandments do have these two tables in which we are given to love God above all things and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And the first neighbors we are given to love are the parents. And so to see that together with the first commandment, how the how God desires to work through our parents is a is a reminder of the importance of that commandment in particular and the way that God would be the one at work through them. And then the third commandment, the remembering the Sabbath day, certainly fits into the idea of worshiping God alone, that we would gather together to hear his word, to rest in what he has done for us. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, we all know that the fourth commandment is the first one with the promise, you know, yeah. that it promises this, this long and good life in the land. So as we are here at Sinai looking forward to the entry into the promised land, that, that does give that added importance uh, that God is, is giving giving here in those words. Yeah. Now, as as the Lord continues in this chapter, beginning in verse 5, he begins to describe the eating of the peace offering. And the peace offering came up earlier in Leviticus in those first seven chapters, especially. There were lots of details as to how that was to be offered. And the matter of eating, it does, does come up there, but there's, again, this instruction about how long you can let that, that offering go before you have to burn it, and it's no longer fit to eat. Uh, what's going on here in these verses about the peace offering? I mean, one one person might say, well, obviously, bacterial replication in the uh, in the meat and food storage and all this kind of stuff is really important, and God is saving his people from from a bad case of indigestion or something. <laughs> and, and I suppose that on one level might have, have some sort of a point to it. But as, as I read this and look for the, the deeper meaning, what comes forward to me is that the consumption of the offering in earnest by those who have offered it uh, indicates what is going on inside the heart of that person. If they're taking seriously this offering that's being given and they're offering it in faith towards the Lord, then why not fully participate in receiving the blessing of having offered it? You offer it to the Lord, but then you receive the, the food back, at least in, in its part, that is for you to be consumed, and, and that's a blessing. So if you take the blessing lightly and you say, well, you know, I can finish it tomorrow, well, so be it. There may be circumstances in which uh, you would be prevented from consuming it whole that day due to the time that it was offered and the time that the sun's going down, etc. So there's there's room there for the legitimate things that can happen that would prevent the immediate all in on the same day consumption. Latitude is given then that you would certainly consume it and finish it on the second day in in earnest fashion. But if you're leaving this till the third day, you're, you're not being serious about what's going on here. You're despising the offering. You're despising the, what you receive back from the offering in, in the form of the food that's to be received with joy. And it gets down to the motivation of the heart, I think, of the person that's giving it. Yeah, I mean, I think, and we've talked about this previously with some of the timing on how when to eat. There could be a sense in which there's a desire to manipulate the holiness of God for your own benefit. So yes, God's offering my holy offering me this holiness as I partake of this peace offering, but I want to I want to kind of keep some for myself in some way and, and use it on my own terms rather than using it on God's terms. You know, trying to to separate perhaps the the meat of the peace offering and make it be its own thing 
apart from the use that God has given it in the sacrifice. And so he says, no, you go ahead and you consume it as a part of the sacrifice. That's where I'm offering you my holiness, and don't try to take that holiness and manipulate it for yourself outside of the use that I've given. Right. That, uh, that certainly has echoes to modern practice today, too, when we consider what it is that we receive at the Lord's Supper. Um, I, I don't know if this works exactly, but in my head at least, if we regard what we receive in the Lord's body and blood at the Supper, um, every congregation is going to have to figure out how do we deal with uh, what remains of those elements after everyone's been served in the distribution. Um, I, there are certainly many people who their practice would be that uh, the pastor would, at the altar, consume the remaining uh, body and blood of Christ. I think that might be something that corresponds to that first day consumption. You know, um, There are certainly times when circumstance dictates that that's not possible. If there are many individual cups and, and whatnot, then it may be consumed reverently after the close of the divine service. Uh, but we certainly wouldn't go into that third day mentality where um, we're just going to treat it as nothing. We'll put it uh, back in the sleeve in the freezer, um, and we're going to pour the blood of Christ back into the Mogan David bottle um, at this point, you know, and, and stick it back under the sink. It's um, it's not recognizing the reverence for which we we ought to have towards the elements that have been given for this purpose. And you know what you're talking about there with the meat perhaps being used for a purpose for which it was not given, of course, helps us to understand what goes on, um, at least in Roman Catholic practice, where the host is reserved in order to be revered, um, and the Corpus Christi uh, festival and all of this kind of situation where um, one would go to a consecrated host during the week and pray, because that's as close as you can be to Jesus when the command is to take and eat the body of Christ that's that's given for you rather than to to turn it into something else entirely. So there there are definitely some modern applications for us. Right, right. And not to not to bind consciences on on things that the Lord has has or hasn't commanded concerning the the remaining elements, but to, the point to treat them reverently because they have been set aside for the Lord's use and then to use them according to the Lord's word. I think is the the key thing that when the Lord says take and eat, take and drink, we should take this seriously, and and though there may be extraneous situations that can be dealt with pastorally, we want to keep the Lord's word primary and, and seek to do according to His institution, and and not to to take things and, and use them according to our own wisdom, because that's where we're we're bound to go the wrong way. And simply to stick with the Lord's words: take, eat, take, drink, to use them for the the purposes that He's given, so that we would then assuredly receive the benefits that he's promised. And that's that's part of the, you know, when we talk about the elements of the sacrament, we want to use them according to the Lord's command, because that's where he's attached his promise. And we want to be sure that we receive what he's promised. Absolutely. Um, do you recall the story, I don't remember which seminary professor it was, of uh, the woman who had palmed the host from her uh, first communion? I, I don't recall that. I mean, I know there's like I know from the Middle Ages and stuff. There, there's stories of, of people who would take the the consecrated host and like take it home and and put it in the field to try to get better crops and stuff like that. Now, this is someone else's story, but it, essentially, it is that in his younger years as a pastor, he was visiting people in their homes, and in the home um, of a particular lady he visited, she had a scrapbook set out from her confirmation or first communion or however that worked, and in the 
the scrapbook under the cellophane was the host that she, instead of t- taking and eating, kept as a keepsake and had put it in the scrapbook. Um, and essentially the bottom line of the story is uh, that, that the pastor uh, rips open the cellophane and consumes it right there um, rather than allowing it to, to remain. So, uh, you know, really interesting story. That made a big sure. impression upon me. You know, what is, what is this for? Um, yeah. It is for exactly what, what the Lord told us to do with it. Exactly. And so, I mean, again, thinking about Leviticus 19, simply follow the Lord's instructions. And, and don't, I mean, don't try to take the holiness and make it your own apart from what his gift is. Use it according to his gift. And, and certainly when we think about the elements of the sacrament today, there's definitely applications. Use it according to the purposes for which he's given. Now, as, as we move on from there, we come to verse 9, and this is where, as you mentioned earlier, the, we've got the text that's paired with the Good Samaritan. So we've got about two minutes here. Just give us a, an introduction of what we're going to encounter in this section. Yeah, in verses 9 through 18, we'll see two particular groups of people that the Lord wants to make sure we have a certain regard for a positive duty of care for these people. The uh, first are those who are called the poor, and the second are the category of people called the sojourners. Um, the poor, of course, were especially vulnerable, as they are today, but I mean, it was an especially harsh world in which um, the family unit was absolutely primary. There's not the same governmental social safety net that we're so used to having around us. So injury or illness or disability could, could cause poverty through no real fault of the person. And also, you know, for women, the loss of a husband meant the loss of his income and his ability to care for her and the household. So a special um, duty of obligation of the community and of, of the individual towards people in that situation is warranted. And then the sojourner, of course, are those who are journeying, um, journeying through the land. Oftentimes, um, they would be making journeys around uh, through trade routes that might go through ancient Israel, or they would be journeying perhaps uh, as God fears coming uh, into Jerusalem for a particular religious purpose. Um, the migration had many causes, micro, uh, micro causes, macro causes, but um, nevertheless, the reminder is that you were sojourners in the land of Egypt, and God cared for them and prospered them there, and therefore you have the obligation to care for the sojourners in your land as well. Uh, so we'll take a look more closely at what the Lord commands for those two groups as the people of Israel seek to live in his holiness. We'll look at that more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Nate Hill this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Lutheran Church Extension Fund exists to support Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and church workers. How do we do this? Your investment with LCEF makes it possible for LCMS churches, schools, organizations, and church workers to receive low-cost loans for new and growing ministries. And faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, make that possible when you invest with LCEF. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC-insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. 
Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, September 19th. We're studying Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 to 37 with Pastor Nate Hill. He serves at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. Pastor Hill, prior to the break, we introduced the section from verses 9 to 18, in which the Lord especially takes care of the poor and the sojourner among the people of Israel and describes how their holiness is to be is to be lived out among those people. What are some of the particular commands that we see in this section? Yeah, um, to summarize, the commands have to do with not uh, maximizing your own individual gain, your own individual personal profitability, and, and not doing that so that there is leftover or there is more for the benefit of the poor and the sojourners in the land. So, for example, first off, the uh, those who have fields are not to reap to the very edge of their fields. They're to leave a row or two of the crop or a certain number of feet of the crop available and still there. That way, those who walk along the road that adjoins the field that they're in can uh, pick some of the, the fruit off of whatever is growing in the field and sustain themselves along the way. They're not going to have to pack everything they're going to need for the journey. They're going to be able to trust that because of the covenant that is that is in play, that the people are living by, that they'll be able to have their daily bread as they walk down the road uh, given to them by God, but given to them by the participation of, of the owner of that field in the covenant. So I think that's really interesting. The daily bread comes, it comes from God's hand, but it comes through the faithful execution of the covenant by God's people. Another example is they're not to gather the gleanings after the harvest. So even in the places where the harvesters have come through, a certain amount of it is going to be dropped or not, you know, gathered exactly. And they're not to go back for a second pass in order to pick everything up there so that when what's on the edge of the field is exhausted, the gleanings are still there. Um, you know, all of this kind of reminds me of a time when I guess I was poor and maybe you were too, the old seminary days. And and I guess, I don't know if they still do this or not, but at the time I was there, uh, Panera Bread always had day-old bread that they would, I think they'd deliver it weekly on Wednesdays, uh, if I recall. And there would be tables upon tables, uh, eight-foot-long tables full of day-old Panera Bread, which was perfectly good and excellent. And everyone after chapel would go down there and walk home with a loaf of bread that I suppose in the store would have cost $12 or, or something like that, maybe more. Um, but I thought that was an interesting, you know, thing that they would do as, as a corporation, uh, to be a good neighbor, neighbor to us. So, um, it's neat to have been on both sides of, of something like this. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah. You don't strip the vineyard bare either. You know, the fruit of the vine is there for people. You don't gather the fallen grapes. All of it is to be left there for the benefit of those who are coming after you or those who are not as fortunate as you. So. Yeah, and I think that the thing that's always struck me about this text, again, being in the lectionary, so having a little bit more chance to reflect on it than some other portions of Leviticus, is that the way that the Lord speaks here is that it's as if He intends these very things for the poor. And so if if you go and you you know reap all the way to the edges or pick up the grapes that have fallen, you're actually stealing from the poor. The Lord intended those things for the poor, and He wants you to make sure they receive them. So you're not taking care of the poor, and you're stealing from them even. Just the, the way that—it's like the Lord designed it to work this way, and he's, he's inviting his people to, to live within that, that design that he's given for this, this process. Yeah, it's very clearly linked in verse 11. So right after, in verse 10, 
the uh, command not to strip the vineyard bare, um, he ends with, I am the Lord your God. And then he says in verse 11, you shall not steal. I mean, the verse separations are modern innovations. So it, it could easily, just as easily be said that don't strip the vineyard bare because you shall not steal. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So thinking about then the poor and the sojourner and the way that the Lord calls for the people of Israel to care for them in these very physical ways. There's also the matter of not doing injustice in court and not hating. How might we take these and apply them for ourselves as Christians today? I think what you mentioned uh, with the Good Samaritan being paired with this text in the lectionary helps us forward. How do we reflect on and, and use this section of Scripture today? Well, I think it shows us the unity of Scripture in a sense. I mean, exactly with the idea of you shall not hate your brother in your heart, of course, Jesus will link this with the fifth commandment against murder. And as we read that, it's almost as if we feel like Jesus decides to ratchet up the commandment's meaning. But what he's doing is actually exposing what the meaning has been all the way along. So, you know, you shall not hate your brother in your heart in Leviticus 19, 17 is just as much an enunciation of the fifth commandment as when Jesus makes it clear that the fifth commandment is not just about not murdering your neighbor. It's about not hating him, not cursing him, all these other things. So to me, it, it, it gives me confidence in the unity of Scripture. It does away with this sort of false dichotomy we have between, oh, that was the Old Testament God that was all mean and judgy, uh, but now we have the New Testament God who's sugar and spice and everything nice. And it's just entirely, it, it gives me great confidence that the scriptures that we have are accurate. They are real in the revelation that, that we should have had all along. I don't know if that's the answer you were looking at or which path you wanted to go down, but that's, that's no, what that no, speaks I, I to think, for me. I think that's very helpful to recognize the unity of the two Testaments as Jesus does take these and, and apply them. And then the, the other thing that I think stands out, especially when you pair this with the Good Samaritan and the, the question that's asked, you know, who is my neighbor? And the guy is seeking to justify himself that Leviticus, again, fits into that very nicely, too, when we try to figure out, well, who is who is my neighbor? The Lord singles out especially the people that we might forget about as our neighbors, and I think there's something to that for us as well. Yeah, I mean, to turn it on its head, I mean, I guess the question could be, who isn't? Who isn't my neighbor? Um, so we think today about the causes of, of poverty out there. We, we become calloused, I think, um, we usually assume the worst of somebody who is in a time of economic hardship. We assume, well, they probably got there by their own poor choices. Um, they're probably poor because they chose uh, a love of a particular substance or made poor moral judgments. And so we generally end up kicking someone while they're down. Um, we have to be wise, of course. There are people who, there is a distinction to be made by people who are suffering the temporal consequences of, of manifest sin and those who aren't. But I think the text calls us to be much more open-hearted uh, towards those who are less fortunate than us. And the sojourner, I think, obviously, there's a lot of talk of sojourners today. I mean, I, I think we have local sojourners, you might say, when in many large metropolitan areas, we just have a large population of homeless people that are really not just homeless in a transitory fashion, but basically permanently uh, going to place to place with no, no, no place to lay their head in that way. And again, the causes for that are complex, but it's a reality that's there and faces us. And then the, the far sojourners of those making a, a, a further journey certainly would include migrants, uh, both those legal and illegal, both those displaced by war and those 
motivated by um, rational economic choices that they make for their families. So, um, of course, we we pray that those who are are sojourning in the land will will be you know good people that will understand the benefit of the land in which they sojourn in. I think in the covenant it presupposes that the sojourners aren't going to then uh, take everything from the side of the road, so there's nothing there for the next sojourner, but. Um, we just need to, I think, open our hearts a bit more when we read this text rather than doing what a lot of people will say. Well, I know that, uh, well, the sojourners they're talking about couldn't be these people today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we should pause a bit and not try and argue with the text as much as sit at the foot of the text and, and have it examine us. Yeah, I think that last thing you said is especially helpful because there there are places in which Christians can rightly disagree, uh, for example, on matters of, of public policy, you know, some of those things that, that may be in, in people's minds as they're listening to this. But what you said there, I think, is the most helpful, that when we come to the text, we want to make sure we let the text have authority over us and, and shape our lives as to the way we approach things, rather than coming to the text with preconceived <clears throat> notions and trying to shape the text and fit it into what we already think. And I think if if we come to the text with that posture of humility, knowing that this is the very Word of God by which He intends to shape us and show show us what it means for us to live in His holiness, then I think we're much more likely to arrive at a a helpful, godly place rather than arriving at a place where we end up failing to show the compassion that our Lord has showed to us first. Yeah, exactly. And I think we, we need to draw a distinction as well between, you know, uh, the realm of politics, which should be founded often on, on reason and um, incentives and all of this kind of stuff that is, is rational and practical. Um, and that's important, and we should engage our rational faculties in that. Um, but we also need to recognize when we are having a good Samaritan moment. Um, I'd spoken at one point with with someone who had very passionate opinions on immigration policy. And I said, you know, you're certainly entitled to that. Um, but as your pastor, I would ask you, what do you do when someone knocks on your door in need of your own home? You know, do you, do you open the door to them and, and, you know, feed them that that's a good Samaritan moment in which, um, the neighbor is right there in front of you. Um, so that's, that's a a moment where we need to check our, our hearts. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. So, as the text moves on then into verse 19, it does seem that there's a bit of a transition within the chapter, and you mentioned from the outset the need to, to be careful to, to distinguish between moral law and civil law and ceremonial law. Do we see a bit of that distinction happening starting in verse 19? I think we do. I think the way that we see it um, pretended in the text is that at the beginning of chapter 19, the phrase is, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Um, and then there's a different verbal cue here in verse 19, where it says, you shall keep my statutes, right? So again, I I think that's hinting that we may be entering into a a place where most of what is enunciated here are particular statutes for the ancient Israelites that are enculturated in a particular time and place and context. And now that's not to write them off. I want to be really clear about this. Uh, I guess the best way I could verbalize this is, you know, what is the moral law? The moral law is that which is naturally written upon our hearts by God, 
which our ability to ascertain that by our conscience is certainly damaged by the fall. But the moral law is clearly articulated in the Ten Commandments. Yet, as the Jesus beckons us to do, it's not a reductionistic thing. So the Ten Commandments are not ten easy rules for life. But in a sense, and I say this with my, my confirmands all the time, is, is they are, yes, there are Ten Commandments. They're also a, ma matter, a manner in which we can classify the entire moral law. There is not a portion of the moral law that does not fall under the heading of one of the Ten Commandments. So that, that's helpful. And it's hard to kind of parse some of this out from time to time as we read these statutes. The civil and the ceremonial law are those that govern the particular life of the ancient Israelites, either in their civil, civic life together or their religious uh, worship practices that are particular to the covenant of the day. So the civil and ceremonial, they're not completely divorced from the moral, as if they have no connection to them. Many times a civil law is going to have a connection to the moral law, and the that happens to us today. So... For example, we have these particularities in law where you might have a state where abortion is completely legal, but if someone murders a pregnant woman, they're charged with two counts of murder. And we sit there and we say, that makes no sense, but it's because in that second case, that civil law of today, it's whether it knows it or not, it is drawing from the, the eternal moral law of, of the dignity of human life and, and what murder is. So in the same way this takes place in the Old Testament. So we may find certain civil and ceremonial laws, especially the ceremonial laws are going to be linked to the upholding of the, the first table of the Ten Commandments. I, I guess the civil laws may be a little more linked to the second table, so to speak, but they're going to be the way those things get captured and enculturated at that time. So for example, if we realize this is a ceremonial law, it doesn't mean we'll just skip ahead till you get to the next moral law. It means we'll sit and sit and ponder that. You know, why was that a part of the ceremonial law of ancient Egypt? What does it point forward to? Um, and even in the strangest cases of civil law, we might say, well, why was that important? What was it guarding against? What abuse of the moral law that was manifesting itself in that time and culture is it trying to, at least in a curbing sense, to keep the people from from falling into? Hope, hopefully, right. that's helpful. I think so. I think so. So let's, let's try to do a little bit of that. We may not be able to, to cover every single verse here, but a little bit, starting with the very first verse in this section, which is perhaps the most puzzling. It talks about not letting your, at least as the ESV translates it, don't let your cattle breed with a different kind. Don't sow your field with two kinds of seed. Don't wear a garment made of two different kinds of material. I think that the thought of mixture goes into all three of those, but, but what, why this? This one's kind of puzzling. Yeah, so I own cattle, and they have bred with a different kind. <laughs> I have sown seed in a field, what's well, really a trough that we're starting with a garden, and I put two different kinds of seed in one trough, and I am currently wearing both cotton and, I guess, whatever they make Magellan shirts out of, polyester <laughs> or something. So um, uh, I'm in trouble. Um, <laughs> but I guess we can look at this in a different way. So why would you not let your cattle breed with a different kind? I mean... This is, a, you have to know a little bit about cattle. All of the cattle breeds, they come from particular regions of the world where the cattle were bred for a particular trade over time. I mean, the same is true of a German shepherd. Where did German shepherds come from? They came from Germany. They were bred with their own kind to have particular traits. 
Um, a Charley cow came from Charley, France. A Hereford cow came from Herefordshire, England. So all of these things, um, every particular area has that for which it is known. And, and in, a, in a sense that it is maintaining the integrity of the brand or type of cattle that you have. And, and this probably has some implications as far as the trade that they would engage in with other peoples. I don't know. I may be stretching a little bit on that. Um, the second one about sowing two types of seeds together, like in one field, that has to do with the purity of the crop that's going to be able to be harvested. When you think about the parable that Jesus tells of the wheat and the weeds or the wheat and the tares, he says, you know, basically wait until they grow up together, even though you can tell that somebody, some enemy has come in and has sown, you know, the weeds amongst the wheat. Uh, the practical implication is you can't really tell the difference in their juvenile stage, but at the time of the harvest, you'll be able to tell. And of course, this is an eschatological um, image that Jesus uses about what's going to happen at the end times and in the judgment. But the underlying practice was people would mess with other people's crops by by sowing weeds amongst them. So it's a way of not stealing from your neighbor's productivity or causing them to uh, lose their reputation. And uh, the types of fabric, uh, the best thinking on this is that the mixed types of fabric were reserved for the priests. So the idea is that you would not be interpret, you would not be uh, impersonating a priest. You wouldn't be taking for yourself the appearances of an office and the privileges of that office that were not first given to you by the Lord. So hopefully that's a way to kind of tease some of these. I would say these are all very clearly civil laws. I guess you might say the third and sort of ceremonial in a sense. Um, but they do have a connection to the moral law and why you would do certain things and why you wouldn't. But that's why I can, with a good conscience, breed a different breed of bull to a different breed of cows and, and sow my tomatoes next to my watermelon. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Dr. Kleining in his commentary suggests that, that perhaps the, these commandments here could be understood to apply more metaphor, metaphorically in the sense that the Lord has desired throughout this book to distinguish between what is holy and unholy, what is clean and unclean, and, and perhaps that it's less about the the particulars of which seeds are you sowing in your field, and more about that same sort of, of way. I, I'm not, again, I'm, I'm not sure. It's an intriguing suggestion. The things that you said in application, particularly about the matters of mixed cloth as a distinguishing between the priests, also makes some sense to me. But again, as you said, these are not going to apply to us in the same way as the moral law, the Ten Commandments, we're looking for that moral law that stands behind them. For the for the sake of our, our time, we've got about seven and a half minutes here. There are some other ones in this that I think maybe intrigue us in this in a similar way. So you've you've talked about how you're wearing different types of clothing right now. They're they're mixed together. Later in this in this section, say verse twenty seven, it talks about how you wear your hair or how you cut your beard or don't or making cuts on your body or tattooing yourselves. What, with, with these ceremonial civil laws, what might be the, the reason for these, and how do we think about them today again? Most likely, this particular section of 26 through 28 is going to be civil ceremonial laws that are you know, linked to really the moral law of the first commandment and the way that this is going to play out in the midst of these cultures. So, for example, you should not eat any flesh with the blood in it. Um, man, I love my steaks medium rare, right? 
am I sinning? Well, probably what was happening was an ancient practice where an animal would be sacrificed, the blood would be pooled down um, into a basin, and then the pagan practice would be to eat that sacrifice over top of the blood. Um, that's very possible. That then the idea was that would conjure the spirits. That would enable you through that sacrifice, you link the eating with the blood, which the blood is the life of the animal, and therefore you're you're causing the gods or the spirits to um, to communicate with you. It's a pagan type of ritual, most likely. And of course, that makes a lot of sense when we continue on these verses that the interpreting omens or telling fortunes, clearly that falls there. You should not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. Again, this could be uh, pagan appearances that that false priests or pagans would do. Um, and continuing on, uh, making any cuts on your body for the dead. Uh, again, why would one do that? Well, it must be to supposedly communicate with that one who has died. And then, of course, we get to the big tattoo thing. You shall not tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. And this one's the one people talk about a whole lot today. Um, again, the tattoos are probably marks of pagan worship. They, they're almost certainly that. Um, so I would say, you know, does that mean that Christians can't have tattoos? Uh, I don't think that's exactly it. I, I think one ought to be wise in what they're doing. I think there are certain tattoos a Christian cannot have. Um, I think there are certain tattoos that if someone became a Christian, they would probably do well to go to the tattoo parlor and have covered up. Um, imagine somebody had lived a life, um, you know, in worshiping some false god or involved in, I mean, think about like, let's say somebody was a neo-Nazi and sincerely repented, became a Christian. I, I would think that out of that person's new nature, they would have those things covered up because that's not the marks of, of what Christ would have. But I think there's a distinction between that and someone who has like a Trinity symbol tattooed on their shoulder blade. Um, you know, I'm not prone to that. I don't like needles, but um, I'm not going to bind that person's conscience on the basis of this Levitical command here uh, any more than I'm, you know, not going to eat shellfish or... Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, what about then? I mean, and again, just to maybe pick a, something that, that applies maybe in a different way... Say verse 31, do not turn to mediums or necromancers, do not seek them out, and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord. This thought of fortune-telling, uh, horoscopes, tea leaves, things like that, I mean, this one seems like it's going to apply a little bit more directly to us. Yeah, yeah, there are certainly no lack of people out there that will claim to have answers for the big questions in life. Um I remember in, when I was confirmed, one of the biggest warnings they, they told us young people in the you know, 90s was, whatever you do, don't use a Ouija board, right? Do you remember those? I remember. You, know, you, buy, you buy them on the toy aisle next to Monopoly, um, and everybody touches the, the thing, and it, it spells stuff out. The psychologists say it is you know, the group psyche pushing it different places. I'm kind of inclined to believe it might be something a little, little more sinister than that. Yeah. Um, Regardless, um, don't mess with it. It's something that uh, has no benefit to you, quite a bit of risk, and is is tempting uh, the spirit, so to speak. I mean, uh, it's tempting, you know, communing with with the devil and his demons, and that's not something we should do. And many things that look on the outside to be good. Um, wouldn't it be fun to go go to this palm reader and see what they have to say? I remember 
in Austin when I was in college there, there was a tarot card place on the highway that that advertised. And people, it stayed in business somehow. Uh, seems strange, but it stayed in business. And whatever it is that we're putting some kind of faith in as, as a lucky charm or this type of thing to bring us some kind of good is by its definition a breaking of the first commandment. Yeah, yeah. And we've got about two minutes here, Pastor Hill. And, and maybe the, the place to, to wrap this up is in verses 33 and 34, because of the reasoning that the Lord gives. So we come back to the thought of, of caring for the one sojourning in your land. But I think this might be a helpful place for us to, to wrap this chapter up, because the reasoning given is the Lord wants his people, again, to remember that he's the Lord, but also the way that he has cared for them in bringing them out of Egypt, that becomes the way that they are to care for others. So maybe comment on that verse, and maybe use that thought, that reasoning that the Lord gives, to help us wrap the, the thought up of what it means to live in the holiness of the Lord from Leviticus 19. Right. So if we uh, recognize, of course, that the events of the Exodus are real and historical, we, we, we believe that very strongly. But we can also see the events of the Exodus as, in a sense, metaphorical for us as Christians of our release from bondage and sin. So in the same way that, that the people were, were led out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, so too we've been led out of our bondage to sin through the cross of Christ, and we've been washed through the waters of holy baptism just as the Israelites passed through the waters of the Red Sea, um, and, and the connections are there. So here, when we hear that when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. We remember their obligation to the sojourners of their day, but today that calls me and you and all Christians to the fact that but for the grace of God in Christ, um, I would still be a sojourner in this land of sin, captive in, in the Egypt of my sins. And so when we encounter those who are still captive in that sense to their sin, who don't yet know the Lord, our attitude to them should be one of open arms, should be one of, of recognizing, you know, I used to be a sojourner too, um, but look what it means to not just sort of walk adjacent to the promised land, but to live a life fully within it. And, and by that openness, that love, um, that care for them, um, the kingdom of God certainly will find its increase. Pastor Nate Hill is pastor at St. Michael's Lutheran Church in Winchester, Texas. He's been helping us today to study Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 to 37. Pastor Hill, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Tim the Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Leviticus 19, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>